Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network. Sorry, I came in hot on there, didn't I, Nate? You always check your mic, and then you always come in way hotter. It sounded way hotter. I think I, I think I got it back down. Uh, hopefully, we didn't blow out anybody's speakers or eardrums. <laughs> you didn't want to redo that. You don't want no, to just go. No, dude, because we're in it. This is a special episode. It doesn't even matter what the b- b- intro b- b- says. Bonus episode. That is the bonus episode. <laughs> Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the Add On Education Network. The podcast where we take a look at the weekly "Come Follow Me" discussion. Although that's not Most what we're doing tonight. Yeah, we're 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 kind of we're kind of off. I don't I don't know. Like off the ranch. What do you say? Off the rails? Hopefully it's not off off the the rails. rails, huh? No, I mean, not yet. We will get there. I am your host, Jason Lloyd. Yep. Here, off the rails with our friend of this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. I'm here, ready to derail this whole thing. (laughs) Well, hopefully we can rerail it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's rerail this thing. Let's rerail this thing. All right. Tonight, as you've probably seen or heard so far is the bonus episode that we've been kind of teasing at for a couple weeks. We're excited to do it. We've been um, we've been waiting until we feel thoroughly prepared to try to tackle this because we don't want this to be um, cheap. We want this to be something that, I mean, again, as much as we love having direction with the, with the weekly Come Follow Me um, lessons as kind of a starting place of what we talk about, uh, we're hoping that that our preparation will pay off in a way that this this bonus episode will be something that is um, uh, more of kind of a bigger picture uh, discussion. Um, I'm not sure really how long it, it is going to run or not, but we can't make any promises that it's going to be short because we have a lot we we have a lot to dig into um, and. If you don't know already, by the title of this episode that you're clicking on and listening to, we're talking about tonight, Was Jesus Married? And why on earth that would be worthy of having an entire episode to talk about. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to be kind of, uh, I'm going to be playing kind of the role of the host tonight and throwing a lot of this kind of to Jason to get going. But just so you know, as far as like a just a kind of a general structure that we're gonna how we're gonna tackle this is, um, we're gonna we're gonna present why first, why it matters, why we're even doing this. Second, we're going to talk about quite a bit of evidence. Now, in this evidence, we were we are going to completely acknowledge from the beginning that a lot of this kind of if it was by itself for us is probably easy to kind of nitpick or to dismiss our goal with providing as thorough of a picture of this as possible is to hopefully hopefully present a case that if you can take a, a big picture look at it and not on a not on an individual that you can look at the sum of all of the information and go okay well that that makes a compelling case we're going to present why it is such a it's a weird thing for modern Christianity to talk about or think about or even want to discuss and why it's something that you probably don't hear a lot of people talking about, definitely not in church, in various places, and the reasons why that would be the case. Yeah, yeah, admit it, guys. You're probably cringing when you clicked on the title oh, of this podcast. No, the, I don't, not our listeners. Okay, good. I feel, like, I feel like our listeners have been waiting for this and are ready to get into the weeds with us. 
They're ready to get in the trenches, not the weeds. They're ready to get in the trenches with us. I like that. And then, and then at the end, and and kind of throughout, we're going to continually try to make the case of why. And 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 even before we get started, I kind of want to at least just I want to put the banner on this. Jason, is that all right? Do it. The reason we want the reason we care so much about trying to make this case is because as we were researching this and as we've talked about it we see that over time there's been such a huge push culturally politically religiously to separate us from Jesus Christ to make us feel distant to make us to make Jesus feel unknowable unachievable unachievable which goes against every single thing that Jesus taught while he was here and throughout all scripture that we have available to us for what we believe in modern revelation, it goes against all of the things which Jesus himself said, which was be one with me, follow me. In When he was baptized and telling John the Baptist, it is up to us together, we must be fulfilling all righteousness. Yet, for some reason, and we're going to talk about our theories of why, but because of various reasons throughout the last few thousand years, there has been a huge push to try to create more of a separation, to almost take away the humanity from Jesus, to to make him the, again, the untouchable, the unachievable, and us as as too distant to ever be able to reach that. Is this, is that a fair banner point, Jason? Yes, sir. And and almost like putting uh putting it in terms of building a wall between us and, and Jesus. Because I, I feel like in history we we see that, right? The, the the Great Wall of China trying to separate and divide. You've got the Berlin Wall that goes up. So I almost like to put it in terms of the wall maybe that humanity has been putting between us and Christ, robbing him of his humanity on one side but then also robbing us of any potential for deity on on the other side. Perfectly, perfectly stated. Um, okay, so that's this is this is going to be the, uh, now that we've stated kind of that idea. We, that's the idea that we want to kind of make its way through the entire discussion. That, that's that's tonight. really more what the podcast is about. Yes, we're going to do that though through through. I feel like uh, the perfect way to have that discussion, which is, was Jesus married? Jason. Yes, sir. I know you're not gonna I know you're not right now gonna give me the answer to that question. Do you wanna know my answer? Sure, let's hear it. Okay, let's get into it. Let's go. That's my that's my answer. Is let's dig into it. Why I, okay, Jason, I'm gonna ask you I'm gonna throw these to you All and right. I'm gonna let you do this. Let's start with Jewish culture. Is Jesus a thirty year old plus man who is referred to as rabbi, who is being followed by we're going to assume other married Jewish men as his disciples and other women is is from a cultural standpoint, give us a little bit of history on on if this makes any sort of cultural sense that Jesus as a Jew would be unmarried at 30 years old in, in all of these circumstances. Yeah, yeah, not likely. Um the, the, if, if you go back to the rabbis, the first... Which he was referred to a lot as. Yes. Rabbi. And, and, and you look at how they interpret the scripture. The first commandment of the Torah in, is 
be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. And they felt it was critical that you were married. And not that just that you were married, but you also tried to have children. So much so that if you died without having a child, that your brother was supposed to take up your wife and and procreate and and create seed in your name, right? It was it was the first great commandment. And because it was a commandment and it, and it was looked at something that they had to do, a requirement, rabbis couldn't be an example to the to the, to the people. They couldn't teach if they were not completing the commandments, if they were breaking the commandments themselves. And you and you look at the wisdom of the Old Testament and they talk about you being a menace to society if you yeah. go on without being married. I love it, the menace, the menace to society. Yeah, continue. Yeah, any any guy that's single for too long and not settling down and not having a family was viewed negatively in society. You could not be a rabbi, a teacher in ancient times without being married. Give us. I know we've talked about it a little bit too. Give us like the temple ordinances. Okay. The Holy so, of Holies. Like, like what, what is, give this, give, give us some religious context to this. So not just, uh, we've got, we've got from one perspective, we're talking about Christ as a rabbi and, and the idea that a rabbi had to have been married. I mean, it is very prevalent uh, going into 1830, almost into modern times, you have a big uproar and a riot at people suggesting making somebody uh, a rabbi before he was married. That going back and anciently in history, it just wouldn't happen, right? And and even in classes and schools, they would put on the ordination if it was somebody who was who was studying that wasn't married yet that this ordination is not going to happen until they fulfilled that and being married. So that's that's one perspective from from if you're calling him a rabbi, that's that's most likely what it what it means in his time and his culture. But Christ is not just called the rabbi. He's called the great high priest, the the Gadol, the, the great high priest. And a high priest was required to be married. Not just the high priest, but all priests. And you think about how priesthood worked. And, and there's a shift in priesthood in the old world versus priesthood in the modern times, right? As you go from Judaism to Christianity. And, and even in early Christianity, Priests were required to to be married and have kids. You you see the shift actually at the Council of Nicaea, which we're going to talk a lot today. And once we get into the reasons why this has been changed over the years, but yes, yeah, and, and in that council, because now all of a sudden you're saying priests shouldn't be; they should be whole and pure so, and not do that, right? So yeah. that's where this changes. But early Christianity and Judaism had a very different view on this. And if you go back into the Old Testament, the priests were Levites; they're a family. So if you were to command celibacy among the priests, your priest would die out within one generation. You just can't have priests without marriage, without children. And the high priest especially, because the high priest's job is to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in order to go in there, he had to be as close to perfect as possible. So he couldn't have any blemishes, he couldn't have any, any problems, and he was required to be married. So much so that they, they, the, the, the rumor has it that the high priest would have a standby wife. 
right? Just in case something happened and his wife died right before the Day of Atonement and he had to go into the Holy of Holies, but he didn't have a wife, they would have like a secondary standby wife to make sure that he was still married to be able to go into the Holy of Holies and fulfill all righteousness. And and if this guy is is supposed to be a, a, a shadow, a symbol, a representation, a type of Jesus Christ— then you would expect Christ, who's being called the great high priest, that he would also be married to fulfill all righteousness, to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. And you think of the Holy of Holies, we're going to talk about this when we get back into the New Testament and, and talk about the atonement, right? As he's on the cross and he goes to his father's house, this, this, this importance of being able to enter into that sacred space and perform what he's come to do, he had to be perfect, and part of that perfection was to be married. So from so from from just a cultural standpoint there it would have been incredibly shocking and awkward if Jesus hadn't been married but was b- being referred to as rabbi hanging out with again a bunch of were again you and I were going to assume that the other disciples were married men because like you just got done talking about it would almost be weirder if it was if Jesus happened to just find 12 other unmarried Jewish men, you know what I mean, that, that were then following him around. The 12 bachelors. I mean, the, that would have been quite the story. That would have been the story more than anything, and, and kind of as we talked about as we were talking through this, for me, the fact that that is never brought up as a point of contention by the Pharisees, Sadducees in the New Testament, I feel like there's, there's quite a bit of information. We're, we're going to talk a lot about today about the information and the things that we don't read in the text and how that actually makes a pretty good case for a lot of these things. The fact that at not one time do we read in the New Testament the Pharisees going like, Jesus, um, do you believe that the first great commandment is multiply and replenish the earth? Why do you and the other 12 bachelors totally take, take for granted this, this commandment? Like you would think that that would maybe be the first, yeah, the, the first of many things that the Pharisees would be bringing up in these cases, accusing them of of grinding wheat in their hands on Sunday rather than letting the wind blow the chaff. Yes, would have been very minor as opposed to okay, how can you guys go about teaching the people when you're not living the first law, right? I mean, y- y- it would you, you been, make a good point. Okay, let's move on then to who. <laughs> As I've, as I've been kind of hinting at towards as we as we continue to bring up the who. Well, maybe maybe right before we get into the who, when you've been talking about this from a perspective of rabbi, from the perspective of a high priest, and and I feel like we mentioned in there uh, part of the role of the high priest was this idea that he was supposed to be as as close to perfect as possible. Maybe maybe we slip in one more argument about what perfection looks like. Oh, that's yeah, great. Let's do it. Because Christ says, be one, be whole, be complete. And in even Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I command you to be perfect, uh, whole, complete, even as I am, even as the Father is. And, and the idea with perfection and, and whole and completeness is that Adam was whole, complete, perfect in the beginning, but then he has something removed from him, right? God takes a rib or a side, depending on how you translate that, and, and pulls it from him and creates Eve, and so that now he's, he's missing something part of him, right? 
and and then they have the fall. And this idea with the atonement is it's going to reverse the fall. And where man has been separated into man and women, for that reason shall a man leave his his mother and father and cleave unto his wife to be made whole oh, and perfect, perfect again. It's exactly. part of this restoration. So, so the atonement is a restoration in, in trying to bring men and women back into paradise, but also trying to bring them together. And it says in the New Testament that neither is the man without the wife, nor the wife without the man. And, and it's implied here, neither is the man what? Whole, perfect, complete, without the wife. Neither is the wife whole, perfect, or complete, without the husband, but together they, they, they do that. So if we refer to Christ as a perfect man who's whole and complete, and he's saying, be whole and complete like, like me, me. It, it's, it's almost assuming that, that he has that completeness, that, that he's not just half a man, he's, he's, he's been sealed to somebody to, to bring that perfection about. Incredibly well stated, and I'm actually really glad you brought that up kind of at the beginning of this because this is going to be, again, kind of the foundation of a lot of the things that we're going to talk about kind of going forward into the who. But just to to put my own fine point on what you just said and that I completely agree with, for Jesus to then, to to for us to say if Jesus is perfect, we would expect Jesus to be perfect by his own standards that he's given us to be perfect. By completing the commandments. That's exactly right. And and it, it feels to me like we're not taking him seriously if we say, oh, no, he expects us to do all of the things that he just tells us to do, but not himself. But he, he refers to himself as perfect, but, but he, he's—look, yeah, he was baptized even though he didn't need to be is a common thing to say, right? Oh, he did all these things that he didn't have to do. Oh, he, he obeyed all—oh, he, he, yeah, he, he was perfect. He lived the commandments. He, he did all these things or whatever. Well, just up until that one thing. Jesus tells us that we have to do all of these things to enter exaltation, and he did all of them except for that one thing. He was—he was, he, he, he got to—he di- he didn't have to do that one. He, he abstained from that one. And then you just go, well, that doesn't, when you say it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me that he would say, you guys, to be perfect and to be like me, you can't have the man without the woman. But I'm, I'm just going to ignore that one for now. I'm just going to avoid that one for now. It just doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me that that would be the case. Well, particularly when he says he's come to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law, right? Yes. And a jot and a tittle... There are small marks in the Hebrew writing. It's very similar to saying dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And if you're paying that kind of detail to the law, when you're talking about the sacrificial lamb on Passover being lifted up on the cross, staining the blood on the, on the post, and thirsting against it fed this bitterness on the, on the vinegar, and all of these little details and fulfilling all of the righteousness— it would seem like an oversight if you left out an entire letter, let alone not a jot or a tittle. Yes, not yeah, exactly, an entire letter. And by the way, the first commandment of Jewish law, like like the number one of the Torah, right? Yeah. Um, all right, let's let's move into a little bit of the who. I know we kind of we we we. I want I actually want to start at the uh, the feast at Canaan, the wedding feast at Canaan. Oh boy, can we start there? Let's do it. What is the common denominator between? the apostles of Jesus being there, and Jesus's mother in some sort of a role where she feels a responsibility to be in charge of 
the catering, right, in charge of, of what is being served, and then going to Jesus himself to have her help or have him help her with those things. You, you, you kind of said there's, there's a crossroads there, right? My question, I guess, would throw out is, again, we don't have the for sure answer, but there is something there to at least discuss. Yeah, it's, it's particularly when you're talking about Christ finding his disciples out fishing, it's, it's not talking about them as if he's got a previous relationship to them or has any sort of commitment to them. When he's, when he's saying, hey, come follow me, and, and he's calling these people that maybe have never seen him or known him, but, and, and, and he doesn't have his 12 called yet, but here he is at an intimate setting, which is family and friends, and and his his friends, his disciples that he's called happen to be here at this wedding too, and his family. Now, if this is a wedding that by some distant relationship he's there, would you be bringing all of your friends or would it be the friends of the, the bride and the yeah. groom, right? Like what, why, why is it that, that his family's here and, and you bring a really good point up, why is it that his mom feels personally responsible? That's what I, that's, and again, like to me, it's like, that's a big question, right? Why would, why would, again, even if it's just a distant friend, why would his mother be in such a frenzy to be like, hey, we're running out of, we're running out of wine to serve the guests. What are we going to do? Jesus, come and help me. Like, this isn't just like a, hey, I hear that there's a problem at the party. Aunt Susan is saying that they might be running out of wine. Is there anything that you can do? And I guess it feels a lot more intimate and a lot more personal and a lot more not maybe panicked, but definitely a lot more of a responsibility on Jesus's mother Mary at this point. And, and Jesus himself is also taking some personal responsibility on this to to actually fulfill the miracle, to provide this. What responsibility does he have to provide drinks for the guests? If it's if if it's his wedding, you you could see some responsibility there. This is my wedding. They've come here to see me to to wish me well, or to bail his mom out. Or his mom maybe was, that was maybe one of her, maybe one of her jobs was like, whatever. And now because Jesus has brought some of his extra new friends, I'm just saying like, it would at least make a little bit more sense to me why Mary would feel more responsibility if it's her son's wedding. And and she knows who Jesus is to where she could then go to him and say, hey, we have a little bit of a problem here. Anything we can do and then tell the rest of the servants. But again, like, why are the servants listening to Mary in the first place? When she tells the servants, "Hey, do anything that Jesus tells you if to do." If she's just a random, if guest. she's just a random guest at this thing, I, I I'll play the devil's advocate Please. on this one. Though. I mean, this is what we have to. We, we have, have to, to have this discussion. In in the wedding feast, your groom and your bride are typically going into the wedding room, the wedding chamber, right, and they're consummating that marriage and they're spending time in that marriage, while the guests are outside celebrating and drinking. And, and I feel like an argument could be made if this was Christ's wedding, wouldn't he be indisposed? Wouldn't he be For in the that chamber? wedding? I've seen the fiddler on the roof, dog. <laughs> I've seen where the dancers come out, the mazel tov. I mean, I've seen it, dude. Are you telling me that they're not? They don't come out, and they're not at all a part of the party. They're gone the whole time. I, I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point. I don't. I don't have all the details. I know. I know these feasts sometimes last up to like five days, right? That sounds like a party to me. That's, that's fantastic. And you, and you've got to come out of that room sometime. Okay, so this is my point. Is that I appreciate that. I I don't think that that. Nece- I I do appreciate it because it does at least give context. 
I don't know if it necessarily gives us any really good evidence one way or the other, but I just at least wanted to start there. But you do bring up some good some good points, and I think probably one of your strongest arguments is why would the servants be listening to Mary if she was just a random guest? Why would the disciples be there if this didn't have anything to do with Jesus? It's like, unless Jesus is just the most like inconvenient guest ever and bringing his own friends that probably weren't on the ledger, you know, on the uh, invite list. Particularly when you're a little bit tight on resources. Yes, yeah, to which bring, we found uh, out. Uh, to bring a few extra guests when you don't even have enough to, to, to provide for. If this is a poor family that can't supply a ton, why would you be bringing so many extra people? I like it. Let's keep moving on. Okay. Mary. Had a lamb. Mary. I mean, who else? I mean, that's, that's who it's got to be. And I think that this is, when, when people do have this discussion, um, I, I, I actually do want to start, I want to I kind of start where, where we would have maybe gone later and actually just preface this with, which Mary are we talking about? That's a fantastic question. Okay. Start, give, us, give, us, give us a little bit of a rundown there. So there's a couple Marys that are mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, you've got, obviously, Mary, the mother of Jesus— and then you have Mary, who's arguably the aunt of Jesus or the sister of Jesus, depending on what source you're reading. And then you have Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. and and Magdalene just means from um, from Magdala, right up in the north, kind of in the Galilee region. So she's coming from is similar to where Christ is coming from. And then you have Mary, the sister of Martha. So so you start to get a couple of different Marys here, and. Early on in, in the Catholic Church, they, they start to accredit Mary, the sister of Martha, with Mary Magdalene and say that they are the same person. And, and it's, it's hard to say for sure. You, you never have the two of them. This is like Clark Kent and Superman, right? They, they, never, they never show up in the same room at the same time. You never have those two side by side. And, and they're both involved in, in interesting enough intimate stories with the Savior. Now, the argument for them not being the same person is that Magdalene, coming from the north in Galilee, whereas in you've got Mary, Martha's sister, a lot of the, the, the stories with her are in Bethany down next to Jerusalem. So geographically speaking, they're separated in different areas. But at the same time, you have Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene, and yet a lot of the stories about Jesus are happening in Bethany, in Jerusalem, and other places as well. So just because she was from Magdala doesn't mean that she always resided there. In fact, would you be calling somebody like Nate? Like I was I, I was born and lived 20 years in Logan. Yeah. Would, would you be saying, oh, Nate, the Logan boy, if you're in Logan with everyone else? No. It makes more sense to say somebody is from that area if they're, if they're living, living outside, outside of, of that area, That's right. because then it separates them from everyone else. Yes. So calling her Mary Magdalene, in my mind, almost makes a stronger argument for her living outside of the Galilee area. And, and, and I, I don't know. The, the, the problem is the Bible isn't clear. But there is a story in the Gospel of Philip, and, and maybe we go down to the Gospel of Philip a little bit better in a minute here. But it says that there were three Marys in Christ's life. And you're like, wait a second, I thought we just listed four. If, if there's only three, and he says the mother of Jesus, his aunt, and then you have 
Mary Magdalene. And you're like, well, what about Mary, the sister of Martha? If, if, they're, if they're only listing three in the Gospels, then in that ancient account, they're associating Mary with the, the, the same, Mary Magdalene so we, and Mary, the so sister I of Martha. So I think that you and I agree that the Catholic Church on that front got it right, that they're the same person. Yeah, and, and I would have to say limited, right? Because in, in this sense, they actually make quite the stretch. They say that it's not only is she the same person, but she's a prostitute. And, and they really kind of drag her name through the mud a little bit. And a lot of it's unfounded. There's nothing that's really based on that. And, and it sticks with tradition for a long we're time. we're going to talk about why later yeah, for and, that, too. And I think recently, in, in, in recent years, they've, they've tried to backpedal away from that have. a little bit. Correct. We're going to assume that this is the same Mary. We're going to assume that the sister of Martha and Magdalene are the same Mary. Um, should we go? To, should we? Should we talk a little bit about the book of Philip at all, or, or, or is that? Are we too? too we do, soon for but that? I think uh, I think we come back and, and hit yeah, that. Let's towards start the with end. the Gospels then. Okay. Um, why is Why is Mary, the sister of Martha slash Magdalene? anointing Christ with a very, very expensive oil. And I know we touched upon this a little bit last week, but can we go a little bit further down this? You, you, you talk about how the, what she's anointing him with is used twice in the Scriptures. Yeah, it's only mentioned one other time. So you've got spikenard, right, in the New Testament, and, and it's what Mary's using to anoint Christ with. And the thing about spikenard is it has a very strong smell, and, and little goes a long way. And she's using a whole, I think it says like a pound of it. If, if we're trying to get down to, to how much, that's a lot. And, and it even almost makes me laugh a little bit coming into Christ's death. Because anyone who's in the room with him probably smells like it too. So, so it makes me laugh a little bit, smile, thinking about Peter, like I was not with him. Yeah, <laughs> and he smelled right. just like the guy. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but, but going back to the point on hand, it's mentioned the other time in the Song of Solomon, and it's used as a perfume that, that a lover is using with their, with their lover, right? And, and that's, that whole book is about a man and his, and his lover. And so it's a very intimate setting that it shows up right there. It's, it's a perfume used uh, in, in that sense. And now it shows up in the New Testament one other time, and, and there's, it's almost something intimate about it because that's the way it's used, because that's the setting and that's what it's reserved for. Okay. Um, why is, is, I guess, to kind of move then a little bit later in the week of this, that this is happening is, is what, um, if any significance do you see, because, you know, I see some significance in after the resurrection, well, first of all, we should probably talk a little bit about that too. Mary goes to anoint and and f- and finish the burial rites for, uh, or not rites, but the burial process for Jesus after he's been crucified. Meaning, because and and I'll let you kind of go into the details of this, but but she had to wait for a few days because of all of the ceremonial things, the Passover, and all of those things that happen. But but I just to paint the picture. If I understand this correctly, Mary's going back to clean the body, which probably still had blood caked on it from from the various things. Um, would have would have needed to go and probably take the the burial clothes that were probably just really quickly put on Jesus at the time off to clean and finish anointing and 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 you know what I mean, doing all of the other burial things before re-robing Jesus himself, which again. 
I feel like at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, would be totally inappropriate for somebody to be doing to somebody that they weren't related to or wasn't, you know what I mean, that they didn't have some sort of an intimate relationship with, that no no close female friend is going to be going in with the undressed body of Jesus to then wash all of the dirt and the blood and all of those things off and then clean and then redress him. Um do you want to go into the reason that it took a few days first? Yeah, or? yeah absolutely. Uh, you, you bring up some really good points here. And you, you would think typically preparing the body, washing the body, anointing it with oil. So, uh, And the purpose here, right, is so that the body doesn't stink. And, and if you're coming in three days, four days after the death to try to go and prepare the body, wash it, and, and anoint it with oil, you're, you're, you're showing up late to the party, right? That, that body's getting a little bit overripe. But the problem for Mary was that this was budding right up against the Passover celebration. And you remember that the day starts at the setting of the sun, and and they had to finish up with the crucifixion before the sunset, not even just before the sunset, but early enough that people still had time for the preparation of the Passover, to eat the meal, to go through the, 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 the religious rites that are associated with this festival that night before. And and it was so close up to the time that even if Christ had died early enough, the two people next to him hadn't. And they had to break their legs to speed up the process. They were running into a deadline. And so by the time that it was finished and they took everyone off the cross, they they, they probably only had enough time to put him in the tomb set the stone over it, and, and guard them. That's it. Because you had to observe the Sabbath, the, the high Sabbath. No work could be done. Legally, she doesn't have the ability to come in and do these things. And then if we're saying that this high Sabbath, the first day this Passover, is, is, is a high Sabbath, she can't do it. Well, the following day is Saturday, which is the regular Jewish Sabbath, which again would prohibit her from being able to do this. So, so if you have him dying on Thursday, not able to get in there on Friday, not able to get there on Saturday, that makes sense why she came in so early in the morning on Sunday to try to take care of this and, and wash this body. And you make a really good point in saying it was, it was the closest family that would be doing this. Yeah, so why her? Why her if she's not family with Christ? Yes. Why not other female from the family of Christ being in there and taking care of this? Or his disciples, or, you know what I mean? Or, I'm just saying somebody would, where, again, like we've kind of talked about this just from a cultural standpoint, it's just hard for me to imagine that that the disciples would have been okay with this too. Do you know what I mean? To go, hey, we we know that we know that Jesus loved this woman and then they were really close and all that because again we read about that in, in in the scriptures we know that they were close we know from at least from the New Testament we know that they were really close friends we know how much Jesus loved Lazarus we know you know what I mean like we know all of these things and even then it's just hard for me to imagine from a decency standpoint and and that's the great argument right it should be the closest female family member. On, on one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin is the decency argument. How how decent would it be or or how strange would it be to have somebody who's not family and, and a female around that same age 
coming in and touching his body and, and cleaning him up and anointing and rubbing oil all over his body, even as a dead man, to come and do this as a stranger just wouldn't seem... Appropriate. Appropriate. That's a good way of putting it. Let's talk a little bit about what happened instead then. When, when Jesus um, was not in the tomb, the rock was rolled away. Um, there's a couple words that we read in the New Testament that, that have changed that, that, that means something different. But let's, let's start with the ones that haven't. R- Rabboni. Yes. What does that mean? So when you put the N-Y ending at the end of a word, it's my. It's possessive. She's saying not, not just rabbi, but my. And, and my Lord. And, and, and you want to, my great teacher, my Lord, my. You, you go back into the Old Testament, and, and the words for husband was ishi my man, um, Baali, my Lord. And, and so she's saying rabbi, but not just anyone's rabbi, my rabbi. And, and it's the only time that Rabboni is ever used in the entirety of the Bible. This is, this is something that she's using that personalizes this claim a little bit more. Like, she, you're not just anybody's rabbi. You're not just a rabbi. Personally, you're my an intimacy about rabbi. that. Yes, okay. Um, I think that that's important. What about what about the the idea of touch me not versus embrace me not? Well, and that's the, the, the that's what it's translated right is touch me not for I have not ascended to my father right. And the and the Greek word here, it, and it's I don't even know if necessarily embrace is the right translation, uh, but it is it, it it has a sexual connotation uh, to to physically, like sexually, don't touch me sexually yet. I, I have not said it's, it's, it's more than just, but, it, but it's intimate. It is intimate. And, and it is interesting because you see Christ appearing to people and he's saying, touch my hands, Yes. touch the, the prince of my side. He's not forbidding anyone from touching him. And yet when he appears to Mary first, by the way, and, and that's another good point. Why is it that he appears to her before anyone else? Right, John says the apostle whom he loved. <laughs> John, and he's the, oh John, he's the first one in that tomb. Right after after Mary says he's, he, he's he made sure to make sure to put that in the text. <laughs> he sure did. Right, he wanted to be the first one, and yet Christ picks someone else, and and that's kind of interesting too, right? Because you you look at some of those Old Testament stories, like unto all the starving widows in Israel, but to none of them did Elijah come, but to this this other woman that was not one of... So you would expect it to be one of the 12. You would expect it to be one of these apostles, but to none of those does he appear, but to this woman, this outsider. It's kind of interesting on that sense, but she does become first, and it gives her kind of a special place. And, and the in, in the reputation that Mary has, they call her the apostle to the apostles because she goes and bears word to them and says, look, he, he is risen. She is the one that's bringing the good news to them first. Which I do just want to, again, like you may think that this is a stretch. I don't think it is. But Jesus had a few front runners in his life. And the one that we've talked about earlier in this this year was John the Baptist. And I can't overstate this enough how much this affected me when we read it this time. When John says, I could I can't tie your shoes or whatever, like I, what do you I'm mean? I'm not worthy to lash your shoes, yeah. I'm not worthy. I'm not I can't baptize you. And Jesus' words to him it is is that it was up to them. It's up to us to fulfill all righteousness, right? That was that was 
a, a prophet to the prophets. John was a prophet, right? He was he was spreading the good word that the Savior has come. Mary is the one who gets to be another prophet to go, the Savior has come back, right? I look at the role of both John the Baptist and Mary very similarly in these in these cases because because they both they both were there to to spread the good word, right? They both they were the ones that Jesus the went to. They were they were the foreigners. They were the ones that Jesus went to to go. Really, in a sense, it is up to us to fulfill all righteousness, right? And Mary, who, like you said, is referred to as the apostle to the apostles, s- served a very similar role to John the Baptist. All right, just want to throw that in there. Yeah, I, I like that. Let's keep going. Um, so should we get into the? Should we get into some of the? Is I mean, is it time to get into some of the extra text, or what? Are, or is, are we at that so. point? Because because once we get into and 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 hopefully you can explain where some of these extra texts come yeah. from, because I think that that's just as key to understanding a lot of this stuff and why we'd even be talking about it. Yeah, and, and I feel like to this point, right? It's not like we have anything concrete or saying this is it or this isn't it. Like you said at the beginning, right? What well, what we have is is probably circumstantial at best, but there's a lot of interesting things. That, that suggests that there's more to this relationship than than what we have. You're being you're being kind by saying circumstantial at best. I feel like a lot of these things that we're pointing to, it, it would it would raise just as many questions. Uh, okay, uh, for example, okay, because I do want to move on, but I also don't want to understate what we've talked about to this okay, point too. Okay, fair point. Um, I feel like again in the. I feel like with Jesus's relationship being so close to Mary, you would have had Pharisees and Sadducees be bringing this up on on multiple occasions. This uh, kind of like what we talked about if Jesus was single. I just feel like with how close they were, this would have been something that would have popped up in the New Testament at some point. I mean, by the way, when when Jesus is is on trial and they're they're accusing him of blasphemy. It's hard for me not to think that at least on some point they wouldn't have been like, oh, and he claims himself to be a rabbi, yet is unmarried, but hanging out with and and very, very, very close with women his age who are also unmarried, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm just saying it's like, it's it's another one it of those things. It would have stuck out. It, it just it feels like something that would have been somewhere in the text because of how awkward and weird that would have been in this case. That's, I just want to say that. That's true. It, 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 it would have been a very defining thing to have this unmarried man running around doing what he did. Hanging I, I, out I, with... I think a lot of people would have pointed to that as as a that, that didn't support Christ as as a reason why they shouldn't. Yes. And the fact that the that there is no conflicting argument that it's mute it's, on that account yes. is, is is almost pretty telling in and of itself. It's loud. That's all I'm saying is is that that's that's a loud omission in there for me. I guess all I'm saying is I don't feel like what we've talked about so far is just circumstantial at best. I feel like I feel like. It, that again, maybe each individual point, if you looked at it by itself, maybe could feel like, oh, maybe. But to me, it's like the resurrection scene there. I, I, I don't know what's the devil's advocate point for this. Why is just a close friend going to wash and anoint and bury him? Why is he going to marry just a close friend first when he is about ready to appear 
to the people that he is using to set up the entirety of his church? Why wasn't his mom the first person that he went to, to go see? Do you see, I guess I'm just saying like there's this this doesn't feel circumstantial to me. Right. And and I, what I mean by that, and I don't want to erode I don't want to erode what what we've established here so far. Okay. I I think what I'm trying to say is is there is a legitimate argument to be made. There there are a lot of things and, and and call it circumstantial, if you will, that that point to this being the case. And when you start seeing circumstantial evidence in and of itself is 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 not very important. But when you start to see lots of circumstantial evidence build up, it becomes it a picture. it becomes more substantial. Yes, and, okay. and to the point where you're starting to say this. and and the reason why I say circumstantial is up to this point, we don't have anything. As, as a solid evidence conclusively yes, stating I agree with you. Jesus was married to, right? We can only point to this suggests, this looks like, this points to, this... this And, and I think collectively, and even some things individually, I think are fairly significant. I'm just saying they're starting to paint a picture. That's all I'm it, saying. Is it, I, just, it, I, just want to be, I just want to be careful saying circumstantial at best. I'm like, well, yes, they are circumstantial. I agree with you. But I guess I'm saying I, I also don't want to erode... Yes, the, the the building that we're trying to kind let's of not, let's build undermine here. where we've been. Yes, um, but to this point, we don't have anything that says conclusive. Conclusive. That's 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 a good way of putting it. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about um, some of the extracurricular texts here. Okay, extracurricular, so ex, uh, extra canon canonized. I don't know how do you say that. Extra biblical. Extra biblical, pseudepigraphal. <laughs> you use all the words that I don't know what they mean. All right. <laughs> so you have you have the Nag Hammadi. Explain what that is. And and so early on, you you had lots of books that were that were written, and and texts that were floating around and going all over the place. And and in northern Egypt, you, you have a city. Uh, the, the Nag Hammadi is the name of this location. And and you have a, a, a leader. In, in the Catholic Church, in this northern e- Egyptian area, do we call it the Catholic Church this time? It's about, what, 367 A.D.? Okay. So it's after the Council of Nicaea. It's after all of the um, Const- yeah, it's, Constantine stuff. It's, it's probably about 40, 44 years after the— Okay. Right, right. So it's, it's, it's still early Christianity. It's after the Council of Nicaea. And, and you have this guy stand up and say— any book that's not one of these 27 books of the Bible need to be destroyed. Mm. And, 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 and there's somebody who, who th- saw the collection of books here in, in, in the Nag Hammadi and said, these are way too important for me to be just destroying them. I, I don't want to let these go. And, and maybe someday someone will find value in them too. I'm going to save them. And the Nag Hammadi... It's, it's not like the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, interesting enough, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Nag Hammadi are both found around the same time, in the 1940s. Okay, so, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are these individual scrolls that are rolled up and put into jars, and a shepherd's throwing rocks into a cave, and he hears a jar break and shatter, so he goes in to see what it is, and he finds these scrolls. And, and he, he's amazed by them. They're ancient, and, and he takes them, and and people are willing to pay a price for them, and because they're ancient texts, and and he realizes he can get some good money if he sells them in fragments. So he starts cutting them up and selling pieces of them, and 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 eventually somebody comes in and buys us out and scoops and tries to save as much as they can. Right? That's the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Nag Hammadi is going to be a little bit different. 
the guy that saves these, he, he, he puts it in a jar, but it's not a scroll. The, the Nag Hammadi is actually a bound book, which is kind of interesting going back to 367 AD or whatever. He, he saves this book, and it's discovered in, in I believe it's 1945. And the first translation of some of the, the texts inside of this, you, you've got about, oh, man, don't, don't quote me. I think it's about 54 different books within this book, uh, different stories or gospels or, or however you want to call it within this. It's a collection that's bound up. And, and the first one's not even translated until about 1975, 1977. And, and so their, their recent, um, relatively recent discoveries... But you have to understand, at this point in time, the oldest complete version of the Bible that we had dates to about 1100, 1300 AD. So you've got this collection of texts that predate the oldest Bible by about 700 years that's talking about the times of Christ. And, and let me... Let, let, let me just read off some of the books that are in here okay, to give yeah. you, you know, just kind of a sense of what this contains. Yeah, real quick. I don't want to get too stuck on this. Yeah, the, the Prayer of the Apostle Paul, the Secret Book of James, the Gospel of Truth, the Treatise on Resurrection. I, you've got all sorts of things here. Gospel of John, Gospel of Philip. Uh, but the but the book that we wanted to, to to kind of look at is is the Gospel of Philip. In the Gospel of Philip, it talks about how Christ loves Mary more than any of the other disciples. And, and the disciples even ask the question, why do you love her more than, than everyone else? It becomes clear. But it also says this. It's kind of interesting. I'm just going to read it right out of here. The companion of the Savior is Mary of Magdala. The Savior loved her more than all the disciples, and he kissed her often on her mouth. Um, that sounds pretty intimate yeah yeah i I mean well i i feel like uh i feel like kissing kissing your companion that's that's a little bit more than just being solid friends with somebody yeah and and the fact that i mean couldn't you say all the disciples were his companion but he says here i mean they're, they're they're using this as a separation she was the companion not a companion but the companion of jesus christ and then the other disciples said to him why do you love her more than all of us and and it's, it just sparks some interesting questions. It, it it puts things a little more directly than you'd see anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I mean there was even a story in there. I think after the resurrection, right when when um, Christ had, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but Christ appears to the disciples and Mary's there. And after Christ leaves again, some of the disciples are like, "Hey, what's the deal?" And Mary is the one to kind of go. No, here's the deal, and everybody's like, "Well, why would? Do you remember the story?" Yeah, you sent yeah, to yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, it, it, it's fascinating because you start seeing in these books, even though they have different names, different authors, different whatever. Some, what's the, what's the, what's the right way of putting this? Uh, agreement or, or or some common threads, right? When you start looking at at some books out of context. You might look at it and say, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm buying all of this. I don't know if all of this makes sense. But when you start seeing something that's brought up consistently in three or four or five different sources, you're saying, okay, this was something they must have commonly held on to or believed at the time. And, and it adds some validity to why they would call her the apostle to the apostles. And, and the story, in, in one of these accounts, it talks about Mary being 
one of the favorite apostles or or the 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 most loved, which creates some interesting riff there. I wonder how John felt about that and if why he's not putting in his two cents sure. about him. You know, maybe he's just gently ribbing her like, well, I don't know, maybe I was the most loved. But anyways, in in the story, the, the apostles come to Christ and they say, why do you love Mary more than us? And Christ answers with a parable. And he says, that if you have blind people and people that can't see in a dark room, they're all the same. But as soon as you bring light into the room, the people that, that couldn't see can see the light where the blind people remain in darkness. And that's it. That's the, that's the answer he leaves them with, that puzzle to, to, to think about the parable. Now, go to a different book. You've got the Gospel of Mary. And, and the story goes that after Christ had died, he came back and he visited his apostles and he commissioned them to go into the world and preach the gospel. And then he left. And, and after he left, it said that all of these disciples were pretty, were pretty distressed. They were concerned about, about the charge to go teach the gospel. They didn't want to do it. They were reluctant. And they started talking amongst themselves about how if they go out into the world, they're going to be crucified just like Christ was. This is fresh. Christ was just barely crucified. If we go out and start teaching about him, who's to say we're not going to have the same thing happen to us? And Mary stands up and, and she's, she kind of acts like a mom to all of them and, and, and puts them at ease a little bit and, and tries to give them a little bit of encouragement. And, and Peter says, look, Mary, you were the favorite. What, what was Christ telling you that, that he didn't tell us? And so Mary sits the disciples down, and, and, and I think this is probably even a little bit more of why they called her the apostle to the apostles. And she teaches them about the experiences that she had with Christ that they weren't privy to and what Christ tells her. And when she's done, a couple of them actually get a little bit of upset about this. And and I want to say I want to say it was Andrew that first raises the concern and says, "Look, this this sounds a little bit strange. I don't know if I'm buying this." Or like, "Why would Jesus be talking to Mary in private without us?" Yeah, and that's the concern that Peter. So Peter follows and says, "Yeah, no, this is this is nonsense. I have the same concerns, and why is he telling you these things that he wouldn't be telling us?" And to the point where he actually gets angry about it. And Mary's response, I, I mean, it's, it's tender. And, and she cries and says, Brother Peter, what are you saying about me? Think about what you're accusing me of doing. If I would make up these things, what, for what end would I be making this up? Do you think I'm trying to get something out of this? Do you think I want to be? Why, why would I do this? And Levi comes to her defense and says, Peter, you've always been quick to anger. You, 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 you kind of blow off the top, and, and why are you accusing her of this? If Christ is the one that told her this, if Christ is the one that chose her, and Christ is the one that loved her, who are you to reject her? And he kind of puts Peter in his place that, and, and, they, and they stop for a little bit, and, and they think about it, and then they get courage, and then from that point they decide to go and take the gospel to the rest of the world. So she holds kind of this, 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 this special part in, in this council of disciples. And it's kind of interesting because it's not just 
the 12 apostles, but she addresses the group like brothers and sisters, that the, the disciples include not just an, a, an entire group of men, but you also have this, the, the, this group of women. And, and I think in this statement, if you, if you give me a second to look it up, because I think there's something said here that's powerful enough that's going to kind of go to maybe your point as you wrap this up. But when they were distressed and wept greatly, how are we going to go out to the rest of the world to announce the good news about the kingdom of the child of humanity? They said, if they didn't spare him, how will they spare us? And, and just hearing them call him the child of humanity gave me pause and made me think about this a little bit. Because what did he say over and over and over again is he called himself the son of man the Son of Man. And I, and I think that's something that maybe has bothered a lot of us. Why isn't he saying the Son of God? And, and if he's going to great lengths to say, I am human, and you start reading a lot of these early texts, and what they say is, to sin is to be animal-like. We're going to be struggling, but fortunately God made us human, like him. And, and this idea of bringing us together, I don't know, it, it, it really shines in, in some of these texts. Oh, right here. Then Mary stood up. She greeted them all, addressing her brothers and sisters. Do not weep and be distressed, nor let your hearts be irresolute. For his grace will be with you all and will shelter you. Rather, we should praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us human beings. And, and by making them human they knew that they could deal with this because that's what God was too. Amazing. Do you want to, uh, I, I know that you said it was a stretch, but I still feel like it was at least an important thing to just maybe wrap this up as kind of like at least the groundwork for our case for Mary is that Jesus said he didn't uh, do anything save he saw his father do it. Yeah, it is kind of interesting that that Christ is born from from Mary and and God, right? And, and yeah, I, I don't do anything save it. I do what the Father's done, and I do everything that the Father has done. And, and so it'd be, it would be interesting if, if Christ didn't also marry a Mary. Mary yep. I don't know, it just kind of ties it that up. Was the, that was the bow. <laughs> that was the bow. <laughs> that was the bow we want to put on. Let's get into a little bit to the why, why this is so hard for us to hear why 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 the initial instinct i feel like of most of christianity is to reject this idea why is it why is it so hard for us to you like not just logically start from the place of like oh yeah for sure why wouldn't jesus have been you know it's like why is it why is it we almost do everything we can to dismiss this and and like, let's kind of maybe try to get to the root of why. Why? Why is the burden of proof on on proving that he was married, when when naturally the burden of proof would have been how was he not married? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I, I and again, like we're gonna we're gonna preface this a little bit with, um, we're not here to take shots at any religion specifically or whatever. We're just trying to be as historically accurate as possible and. To do that, though, we do have to mention certain religions more than others, at least because of of the historical circumstances. Um, we love everybody, and we we want everybody to be happy, and whatever else in that disclaimer. Okay. Um, after Jesus died, after the apostles go out into the world, we kind of know enough of the story to go. 
that there were so many books written outside of what we have and hold in our hand as the as you're holding the King James version of the Bible, it is important to at least acknowledge and understand because as we as like you just said, we have we have uh, texts that were actually compiled before what we have as and understand as the Bible that were being written by other people. So many books were being written, so many writings were being written, and what we have compiled was done deliberately, right? It was done, again, we've talked about the Council of Nicaea a few times, but as Christianity was trying to become galvanized, as Constantine was was doing his part to try to to gather and come up with a one-size-fits-all idea of Christianity, you had uh, a lot of debates and a lot of back and forth about which which texts should be included after again once once kind of the idea of god was decided upon voted upon whatever it is right once we knew once the church knew or 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 the soon to be church knew what the essence of god they needed the god to be there were probably a lot of texts left out because they didn't necessarily fit the narrative right um, and so as these, as these books were being compiled and put together, certain texts were left out, certain texts were kept in, and I don't, and I can't say that even some of the texts maybe weren't edited or, or, or changed even to maybe omit some things that, that the rest of the text was great, but maybe certain parts of it didn't really fit into the narrative that was being created at the time. Is this all fair to say or no? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. You, you had to protect... As the church started to to evolve and to change, and and it becomes this global church, and people are jumping in with all sorts of different beliefs, all all of a sudden this church, it, it it's not the same in this part of the world as is that part of the world, right? And and you fear apostasy creeping in, and you've got to do something to try to quell it, and and the thing is, for the for the church at this time period, it wasn't. Christ, what what do we do? Or let's go back to these teachings and and let's let's let's. It became. I I, I don't know the the word itself. Catholic means universal. Let's make this universal everywhere, and we're going to have this council of people that are going to decide on that. And and I guess that's where. Maybe some of the debate comes from. Was this council qualified to make those? those changes. And, and I, I think history wise, maybe, maybe we look at it and it, it gives it kind of a rough take. I, I don't know. I, I might not have said that right. I, I mean, I think, I think so, but, but I, I think the overriding idea is once the nature of God was decided upon as a group, it would only make sense then that the text that you're going to use as the official canon needs to support this idea yes. on some level. And and you you even see some modifications of of the text that you you could go back to before this time and and find that it existed differently. Okay. I only say that to say this cuz when we talk about why and this is this is where we're going to start getting to our bigger picture of this, which is why would why would the universal church why would the, why would the the catholic church feel the need to basically not make mention of this or to try to remove any idea that that Christ could possibly have been married right this is this is kind of the next part of this discussion now um 
the evidence that this happened is pretty much in all of the art that you see at the time and throughout history and uh, since the church uh, a lot of the religious art uh, a lot of the i mean just the idea that only only like the religious leaders were even allowed to read the bible right like you were you were a heretic if you were reading the scriptures and not like a an ordained priest it, there there's a separation happening right and when you look again at the political climate at the time that you had the Catholic Church and, and Constantine was also no dummy and realized that by galvanizing a massive group of people under a religious banner, that provides you a lot of political power, right? That provides you a lot, that, that gives you a good support base, right? And as the church um, kind of grew out into the world, like you said, down into Egypt and all of the places basically that you had the empire moving out into, it, it was a political force to be reckoned with. And and uh, the, the, the line between religion and political power was very thin, right? Um, well, the religion was the political power. That's what power. I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It, 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 it was one and the same. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't even, I shouldn't it was even an put empire. that line to it. it, it was, I, the Roman Empire really really is the, the, after 300, you know, after Constantine, it was a religious empire. Okay. Now think about this. Why, what, what is the, what is the, what is a way that a political entity like this can maintain power other than by going, there is a separation between you and God and you need us to be the things that bridges that separation, right? And you look at this through the way that a lot of the, the, the church functioned at the time, right? Uh, we read the scriptures, you don't. We read the scriptures and we tell you what they say with our spin on it, right? But you don't read them. Uh, we, you come to us for forgiveness. You can either pay us the money, you know what I mean? And, like, and, and then that will count for whatever. Or you come to us to basically be the inter, inter uh, uh, whatever the word is, not inter- intermediary yes the intermediary thank you between us and Christ not only do you not pray to Christ you pray to Mary <laughs> his mother and then his mother will go to Christ it's like so many of these traditions so many of these trinkets that you hold so many of these basically it was it just it feels like the most obvious thing to do and, and again you look at the art right and it's and it's Jesus again as the untouchable unattainable other like not not at all human like out of out of reach of any uh imperfect human being and the only way that you can get back to him is through this specific institution am i overstating this am i no i don't think so and and what i see here is is it's not unique to the Catholic Church. Sure, I think we're just talking about this as the inception of this idea at the time. But but keep going. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that the idea of replacing the atonement with something else, and 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 maybe we can get into what's the driving factor for that. But but look at even in the Old Testament when when you start creating these stone idols with your hands. And, and start worshiping them. Or you build the golden calf, and I'm going to pray to this calf, and this calf is going to now do this for me. Hey, go back to Moses, whose, whose mission was, I need to wash you, prepare you, and make you clean so that you can enter into the presence of God. And they say, no, we want you to be our voice. We're, we're afraid of God. We're terrified of God. 
You need to be that person in between. And, and so it seems like throughout all of history, we as a people have been trying to invent layers between us and God. We need someone else that we can talk to because he's unobtainable, as you say. He's, he's something else. And, and, and we start to create this barrier, this separation between us and God. Sorry, did I jump ahead of where you're going? No, in fact, I, I actually, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because we've been talking about it this whole year with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees, it's like this idea of these, we're going to create this whole other set of laws and rules and things that, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like we have this whole checklist of things you have to do as the barrier. Like that barrier can become, can be so many different things, but the idea is, the idea is as though that this early on, and I do, and again, like, but I also think it was a power struggle, by the way, for the Pharisees too, which is part of the reason that they had such an issue with Christ, is, is that they wanted to be that barrier. They wanted to be the way through the barrier. They, they set up the barrier. It was them, right? So that they could sit in a position of power. Correct. And... And this is where power comes into this. We, we have the scripture and doctrine and covenants, right? Like this, yeah, this is, yeah. This isn't new, and it's not going away. Yeah, do you want me to read it? Yeah, might as well. I mean, I think it sums it up pretty well, right? It, it, and this is Doctrine and Covenants 121. We have learned by sad experience. I mean, that in and of itself. I mean, this is not new. Lots of, lots of examples we can look through in history. That it is the nature and disposition of almost all men— as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, and, and I think that's—I love that line. That one's—that <laughs> one's one of my favorite ones because it's—it is a supposition. Yes, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. I look at—I look at the reasons why you would have a powerful entity trying to separate us from the one thing that Jesus was telling us to do the whole time, which was be one with me. And it feels like, and, 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 and now that you look at, you, you can at least kind of at least see from the inception maybe why, right? Okay, cool. Maybe you have a, a religion, a political entity that's going, for us to be in power and in control, we need people to feel like and to believe that they have to go through us to, a, to, to achieve any sort of communication or contact with God, Right. We're going to write you out word for word what every one of the prayers should be. You're going to light the candles. You're going to do the whole thing. But the thing is, if you look at the trickle down from now, I mean, that, maybe that's the inception, but look down even now into a lot of Protestant religions who, who, who again, like deny the idea that, that Christ could possibly be still inspiring now or that there could be any books or or anything outside of the bible that was decided upon when then and we're going the have, heavens have sealed there's no more miracles and, then, and so and so again like a separation mm-hmm. it's and it's all about a separation and then again like it's so hard to not then go it feels like the person that would be behind this thing would be the adversary would be lucifer going it's easier to control the way that people feel about themselves if they feel a disconnect, right? Where God's saying, my whole point is to atone or to make at one. The opposite of that would be to to remove from, right? And again, like this is, this is now where we kind of get into the bigger point of this whole conversation, which is 
when you're at your lowest, I know for me, when I'm at my lowest, I have the voice chirping at me going, you can never recover from this. You're, this is one sin too many, man. Or this is one bad habit too many. Or, man, Jesus told you you have to be perfect and you're never going to be able to be that, right? What do we try to teach people about their divine heritage all the time? Hey, you're a child of God. Think of all the things. But, but, but think of the message that Satan is even giving to the Christian community in the world at large, which is you can never reach that level. In fact, not only can you not reach that level, we're going to scoff at people that, that dare suggest that Jesus was serious when he said, you are heirs to everything that I and my father have. We're gonna, we're, we, we want to tear down the idea that you're never going to be just a nothing human that is just, that, that, that any scraps of grace that you can possibly get is all you can ask for and all you can expect after this world. But then you look at why, and you're like, well, of course, because separation and walls have been being built this entire time to make Jesus this magical, unattainable. But it's funny because I remember the first time I think that we were even reading through the New Testament with somebody on my mission and we're talking about the siblings of Jesus. It's like that was, even though it's in the New Testament, it's like, oh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Like, yeah, why is that weird? Why is that weird? It's because it makes him human. And, and so much of what we've been talking about, Jason, you and I, this year has been how human Jesus has felt through our reading of the New Testament this time and why that's so important. And that, and, that, and that Jesus being human is the most hopeful part of this entire thing that we can possibly have because that means that, that Jesus as a human was able to do all of these amazing things, had brothers and sisters, had all of these things, and you go... Oh, cool! That 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 makes me feel closer to him. That, that that makes me feel less separate. That makes me feel like I'm not just trying to chase an unattainable, magical God that is, you know what I mean? That 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 did every single good act and every single great miracle as a God and whatever, but instead did them as a man using the priesthood, using the authority of God, using his using his birthright, you know what I mean? All of those things. But but him being human removes a lot of barriers. It, re- it breaks down a lot of walls. Him being human puts us at, at a place where he's like, I'm coming to your level so that I can bring you up, so that, I, so that together we can fulfill all righteousness, together we can attain exaltation. And recognizing Jesus's humanity and understanding Jesus, the human side of Jesus, I can see would be scary to a lot of political, religious institutions that go, no, 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 no. You need us to be the communication. When Jesus said, through me, not through that church, but through me, you reach Heavenly Father. Now, Jesus set up institutions, right, to to do ordinances, to do these things. But at the heart of every single one of those things is what unification. That's bringing right. Us to Christ is is with Christ, not away from Christ. When we're baptized, we enter the gate. We take upon ourselves His name. Look at the look at the ordinances that we do. They are all done in the name of Christ to make us one with Christ. 
this is why, again, Jason, I feel like the again, as as much as we've kind of kind of joked about it throughout the year of like, oh, Jesus was married and we're gonna make our point. It's so much bigger than this. Mm-hmm. Because by the way, what's more human <laughs> than that? What's more human than the than by the way, the the just the real life struggles of being unified with a different human being and finding unity and oneness with a different person. Well, and and think about how how the argument is that that Christ is married to the church and and we're supposed to be his bride. In one breath, you're teaching how we have to marry Christ, but then the idea of somebody physically marrying Christ, it's ironic that that just shocks people. Just shock. It's it's so important when that's the whole teaching is. Aren't we supposed to be the, the, the ten virgins? What are they waiting for? What what is it supposed to be? It's a wedding feast. How many times does wedding feast come up and Christ say you were supposed to be sealed to me, and then you say, well, but he couldn't be married. It's just it's it's a thing that it's 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 hard for me to to grasp once you start breaking down some of the 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 separation barriers. It's harder for me to not see that as a reality than it is for me. It, it's it's become harder. And one, I understand why that would be a tactic used by somebody that wants us to feel separation, that wants us to feel like, no, he's different. He's different. Well, yes, we all know he's different, but but it's his invitation to us was, come be one. If you are not one, you're not mine. Like the invitation was to come be one with me, take upon myself your name. My my name. See you in see me in your countenance. And by the way, as we talked about in the Old Testament, I want as Jesus saying to us, I want to see myself in your countenance. I will purify you until I see my reflection in you. Like everything, do we we partake of His flesh and His blood? It's like there's there's so much unity that is preached that it's just hard for me to believe that Christ is going to go follow my example. In every single thing, we'll accept this one thing. Just, just trust me on this one, <laughs> right? Do everything. Be baptized. Uh, learn to fight temptation. Learn to do all. It's like here's here's the map of how to be me. My spirit's going to be with you. This whole thing to direct you and do everything that you saw me do, except this one thing. I'm not going to do that for some arbitrary reason. Which, by the way, I still don't even know the reason. Well, and there's there's a lot to unwrap with that, right? You look at the the, the decision made at Nicaea, three hundred years, by the way, after Christ, to to now say the priesthood you can't get married, when before it was a requirement, it was mandatory. And and this is this is an exercise I like to do. And, and maybe this is going to get me in trouble, Nate. So bail, bail me out if it does. All right. I'm here to bail you out, buddy. But you've been doing great. <laughs> but what, what you've asked the question, what is the objective? What do I accomplish with this? And, and so let's ask that question. If I take the most pious people that want to be as, as close to God as possible, that want to dedicate their, God, their lives to this, that are willing to commit and, and, and do the hard things to be an example— and I require them to not procreate, then what am I doing with the population? You're just shrinking it. I, of the I, righteous, by the I'm, way. Yes. 
go go to your science, go to your theory of evolution. And if I am able to successfully weed out the people that love Christ the most, what am I left with? What am I breeding? What am I creating? What's the strategy? What's the long-term goal? What's the consequence of this action? And, and it's interesting, you start going down that road and you start looking at a lot of the different decisions. Um, and, and you talked about the, the scriptures, and, and, and it's interesting not being able to read it for a long time. And, and originally the scriptures were only to be read in the original language, the Hebrew, the Greek. And, and the church is based in Rome, which is, speaks Latin, and so they want to translate the, the scriptures into Latin. And that is an affront to the sacredness of the text. If you love the Word of God, you're going to learn the original language and you're going to read the scriptures in the original language. So they call the Latin translation the Vulgate, which is where the Latin vulgar comes from because it was a vulgar edition. That's the street language. That's the common language. This is, this is vulgar. We shouldn't be doing it, but we're going to do it anyways. And yet the vulgar language is what they still read in the services today And the church put a lid on that and said, we're not going to translate it into English because we don't want the common people to read it. We don't want the common people to understand it. We want them to have to come through us to provide this. And it's so ironic that they are putting the lid on that and not letting it go to English when they themselves are reading the vulgar edition as it stands. Well, I mean, the hypocrisy is like, that's a whole other discussion. But, but the point that you're making that I totally agree with is there's still the idea of you have to go through us to reach God and not you have to go through Jesus to reach God, right? Like, we'll be your connection to Jesus when Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the path, I'm, I'm, I am the way that you reach exaltation in God, and the church is going, no, 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 we are the way that you can even get in touch with Jesus. I guess, I guess the final... And again, I don't want to move off this point, but it's like my final point would be why, what purpose does it serve to have Jesus single? Like what is the, you, I, I guess my, my, my question is, is now that we've kind of gone through, I feel like evidence and we've thought through the, the reasons of why you'd want to separate, it's like, but like now I'm just going to, and I'm just talking to those of us that are, we believe that you're commanded to multiply and punish the earth. We believe that, that. We believe that the scriptures were not lying when it said man needs a woman and a woman needs a man. Like those, you know what I mean? It's like that's for perfection. Those things need to come together. Like what, why would there still be any hang up with the idea of like, well, no, Jesus couldn't be married because of blank. I I don't know of a good argument. I don't either. Unless you think that being married to somebody defiles you. I think it perfects you. I think so. But I think you go back to early Christianity and the idea that partaking of the fruit wasn't partaking of the fruit. It was sexual sin. And the idea that children are conceived in sin. And Christ, being a perfect person, could not have engaged in any sinful activity. If that's how you view it, then you must make him single. Right? But if you view that as, hey, isn't that what creation is? Isn't God allowing us, as you've said so beautifully with John the Baptist, to co-create? Yes. How do we co-create? How do we, the first commandment, multiply and replenish the earth and fulfill righteousness? 
and become like God if we're not getting married, if we're not creating it? Does it not fulfill all righteousness? If that's what you think, it, it, it just it's just I think what you're saying is, and I want to highlight this is, then you have to decide what you feel like an intimate marriage is, what you feel like marriage is. And you just, I think you just nailed it. Do you look at that as a sinful thing or do you look at that as the height of righteousness, right? Do you look at that because you said it, Adam and Eve were separated. The atonement is to do what? Bring them back together. Now, again, not to be super explicit, but, but intimacy is that connection. Intimacy is the bringing together of a man and a woman to do the most godlike thing, which is create. Create. I, I, I want to put. A, I kind of want to wrap this up, but that's. I mean, that's that is very much kind of the 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 definitive <laughs> point that I wanted to make. I want to throw this out there. On its, on its, on its own. Does Jesus, does Jesus being married or not married affect my salvation? No, I don't think it does. I don't think it, I don't think it, um, I think that if I do what I've been commanded to do and have the my heart in the right place, you know what I mean, and all those things, I think that I'll have a good shot, right? But there's a lot that I'm working on. I don't think that, I don't think that whether historically that was or wasn't a thing is going to determine whether me and my family achieve exaltation, right? What I do think, though, is I think that as we continue to learn from the Scriptures, as we continue to develop our relationship with the Savior, the more we begin to finally not just believe but accept that Jesus wants us to be like him in every way. That it becomes more important to start looking at some of these things that maybe culturally we see as taboo or whatever, because, does, oh, that, that brings Christ down to our level. Oh, that brings—yes, you mean like he did? You mean like Jesus himself did? Yes, you're right. He washed the feet of his disciples to prove a point, to make a point. He, 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 he descended to, to below all depths of humanity. He, he did come down to our level so that we could then eventually achieve his, his level, his godlike status, that we could become one with him in exaltation, that we could ourselves also become like him in every way. And it's important for me to have these discussions because... I believe that even in the Christian world at large, there is such a shocking thing to think about Christ being intimate with another human being. When you go, we're we're taught that that is the most Christ, that's the most godlike act that can possibly happen between humans, which is which is through marriage, the creation of life. Now, I I I don't. I mean, I've read the Da Vinci Code. I, I don't buy it, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, I, I'm not going to deny Jesus what he himself said. I'm not going, I'm going to believe him when he talks about him with us fulfilling all righteousness, when he talks about the importance of a man isn't 
complete or whole without a woman, neither a woman without a man. I believe him. That's all I'm saying is I believe him when he says those things. And I believe that Jesus isn't the person that is a do what I say, not as I do person. That's not, that's not who I believe he is. My closing argument and thought on the process is I have my beliefs about the, the specific question and it, it doesn't matter nearly as much as what does matter, which is I'm doing everything I possibly can to finally remove a lot of those barriers between believing what Jesus wants me to become and, and what I have within me and what my children have within them and what you have within you, and that is a claim to divinity. That's what I got, Jason. That's what you got. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll close mine then, too. I'll give you... Uh, I need it. Two thoughts. Are you going to give us your answer? I'll give you two Was thoughts. Was Jesus married? Okay, first. <laughs> first, first, I'm going to give props, actually, to the Catholic Church. As much as we've been harping on some of their early, uh, early decisions in their history, in catechism, they teach from Augustine, who early on said that God became man so that man could become God. And he got it, and I think that's what it's about. And so my takeaway from from this discussion that we've had as we've kind of kind of dipped down this road is what what limits do we put on it? What barriers am I getting caught in the same trap as as most of humanity throughout the ages? Do I look at Moses and Abraham and, and Jacob and say, yeah, they were worthy of salvation, but but not me? Because sometimes we take it even two levels deep. Not only is Christ untouchable, but now so is the prophet. So were the 12 apostles. Those guys are all special. Those guys are all powerful, but not me. And in, in a way, am I creating barriers? Do I need to go to, to, to somebody else and say, tell me what I need to do? When really I should be going to God and saying, what do you want me to do? Do I, do I create my magic eight ball and shake it up and say, what's the answer? When, when I already have that ability to, to approach the Lord. And then finally, to answer the question, was Jesus married? Uh, the, the answer I will give is, it's, it's, it, I'll stop short of saying it because it's, it's not my place to say. I, I, I can't say that he was. I can't say that he wasn't. Uh, but I can tell you, this is, this is what I see. And, and this is the road that we've been down. And, and this is how I feel. But I can't offer any kind of definitive statement saying yes or no. Do you think people are going to be mad or think we're cowards by not by not planting our flag? Because if so, I'll be the one willing to do it. I do think he was married. I'll plant the flag. So we're, we're not going to try to completely escape out of here. I can't say definitively one way or the other, but by the way, there's a lot of things that I can't say definitively one way or the other that I read in the scriptures or that I try to understand from the scriptures. And I think that that's the point. I think the point of a lot of this is is that we're supposed to seek truth. We're supposed to try to discover truth. For me, I feel like personally the the evidence, and not just the evidence in the scripture, but a lot of the evidence of why it would be important adds up for me. Yes, it does add up for me. And um, I'm not going to say that if I find out that that wasn't the case, that it's going to at all change the way that I feel like in my faith. But that's kind of an amazing thing about faith is that we don't have yeses or nos on all of the answers, and that's kind of part of it, mm -hmm. right? Part of it is, but I also, again, I also do believe, though, that we are taught to 
seek truth and to seek wisdom. And this is something that I have dedicated time to. And I, yeah, I, I do believe this, but I'm definitely not getting up over the pulpit and <laughs> bearing my testimony of it because I, I that's you're, like you said, that's not my place to do it. But it's almost easier to believe that he was than he wasn't. It's, and if you try to switch the burden of proof, prove to me that he wasn't. That's you're, you're a hard gonna have, case. You're going to have just as hard. You're, it's going to be, I, I think, honestly, harder to prove that he wasn't than he was. I agree. It never says he wasn't. also, you have to prove a motive, by the way, too. Like, like a reason. Yeah. Where, where does it state that he wasn't married? It, n- nowhere. And what's the reason why he wasn't married? And what's the reason why he wouldn't be? You, you take the same exercise we did and you reverse it, and I feel like you're in a lot harder position. Yeah. Um. We thank you guys for listening to it, especially the bonus ones that somehow have gone even longer than our normal ones. Which, <laughs> which no, don't apologize. I mean, we knew that this was going to be a little bit longer of a discussion. We gave everybody the warning. I probably didn't do a good enough job of of the disclaimer at the front, but I think people at this point, people that are listening to our podcast, know what they're getting into. So, um, but I wanted to be thorough. I, I wanted, would love to hear your thoughts. We would love to hear your thoughts. Um, again, like we are, we are in no position to try to claim that every single one of the details of every single little thing can't have can't have a different um reasoning we we get it like that's part of it part of the reason that we at least wanted to lay out the the big picture and why we want to spend a little bit of time is to go yes maybe maybe one of these things individually maybe a few of these things individually can't by themselves paint the picture that we're trying to paint but when at least for us when you start looking at all of the things put together, which, by the way, is the reason that I have faith in the first place, is all of the little things kind of put together that probably could be explained away individually or even in a small group. We're, 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 if, if, you, if, you, uh, if you have some thoughts you'd like to add, I can promise you we probably won't be trying to argue with anybody about this because a lot of this is still unknown to us, too. Um, but we do love hearing your thoughts. We love hearing your comments. Um at this point, you have to know how to reach us if you've listened to this <laughs> podcast more than two times. But if not, if this is your first time in, one, good luck. Two, uh, <laughs> the way that you get a hold of us is hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Um, we will be um, also posting the regularly scheduled Come Follow Me podcast probably around the same time as this one, if we if not before. But we appreciate we appreciate you guys listening. Um, I don't. I don't feel like an until next week makes sense in this one, does it? Until next, uh, until next episode. See ya.